I'm so glad to be here. I'm having a great time. I was supposed to be in Athens on my way to Jerusalem, and COVID, you know, has changed all of our lives. And if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, show him your day timer, um, because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and neither do I. But I've been given an opportunity for a few minutes to do something. I want to talk to you about how do we know what we think we know about the Bible. I spent the last 40 years following around Moses and Jesus and Paul and been all the places those guys ever were. And all the, that I was trying to do was say, how do we know these things that were said? We're basing our eternity on this. Shouldn't we know how we know what we know? And so uh, of all the things I want you to hear today, here's what I'm trying to say in a sentence. Let's see if I can hit the mark. The sentence is, Christianity rests on claims based on reasoned historical evidence. Now, our faith isn't some kind of leap into a dark closet. I don't have, in order to have faith, I don't have to check my mind and intelligence at the door. My, my Bible students know that I say faith is God glasses. It's seeing the world through what God says is not the way my eyes would see it if I didn't have his word. It's a biblical worldview. But, but does my faith rest on historical evidence or not? Because after all, guys, the Bible purports to be an historical account. It claims that things actually happened that it said. Otherwise, all these visitors that come to Israel and I take them all over the place, I should say, welcome to the land where nothing actually happened. But these things actually did happen, and we have a lot of record for them. Now, in order to set the stage, what we've got to look at is what I'll call historical evidence. Historical evidence. What is historical evidence? Well, maybe I should tell you what it's not. Historical evidence is not the idea that unless we can offer proof that everyone everywhere unitedly believes, unchallenged, we will not say it's true. That's not historical proof. You know why? Because I can't even get a preponderance of Americans to agree to a lunar landing they saw on television. How in the world am I going to show them proofs for things that happened millennia ago? So it's not our desire to refute every skeptic as we lay out the evidence. Our real desire here is to say this. What best explains the data set we have historically on the events as the Bible shares them? And it's also important that you understand that, that historical arguments are not lab tests. There's a guy at Harvard University, Aviazar Tucker, he said it this way. He said, historiography does not reconstruct events. It cannot bring Caesar back to life. It does attempt to provide an analysis of some of the past events as the best explanation of the present evidence. That's what we're going to try to do. Now, we as followers of Jesus, and if you're not, I'm glad you came. Thank you for taking the time. But for many of us, we're followers of Jesus. And we believe that Jesus came, walked on the earth, taught real crowds, actually was nailed to a cross, was really, literally, absolutely, completely dead, was put in a tomb, and in three days walked out of that tomb alive again. Now, if you're going to make some kind of statement like that in academic circles, you're going to have to come with some archaeology and some forensic science. So my, my master's degree is actually in Near East archaeology. My doctorate's in Talmudic rabbinics, but the, that's because I wanted to get to the library and get out of the dirt. The, the point is that, <laughs> that 
forensic science and forensic archaeology is going to help us here. Now, before we go any further, let me just say, don't be fooled into thinking there's no evidence for our faith. That's not true. Even though it's not handled completely fairly, remember the Bible is criticized most by those who read it the least. And so they'll have grand understandings and assertions about its lack of veracity, but they don't actually know its contents. I find this on college campuses everywhere. Oh, one other word of caution. Somebody will say, well, you know, you can't be the one who represents the teachings of Jesus. After all, you, you follow Jesus, so you have a bias in this area. And I always remind them that a detective can have a theory of the crime, and that does not negate his ability to actually check out all the facts. You can have a position and not be invalidated by having a position. Now, recently I discovered something, and I pass it on to you, and I'm hopeful it's helpful to you. Um, I was taking my phone, and I was going through Virginia, and I was trying to go up to find this really acclaimed mountain restaurant. It was pretty remote, and for reasons I don't understand, Google got it wrong. And I ended up next to a shack occupied by what looked like people who were on Duck Dynasty. And there I was, eyeball to eyeball with hairy, scary, and sketchy. And that's pretty judgy. But uh, I, I, honestly, here's what I found. A flawed map is dangerous, isn't it? In fact, the guy who's the worst guy to follow is not a guy without a map. It's a guy with a wrong map who's confidently going in the wrong direction. So here's the point. When you're looking for a restaurant and you can't find it, that's inconvenient. But when you're looking for an eternal destiny, you better have the right map. Living downstream from a cracked dam is safer than living with a Bible that's flawed. So there's a chorus of movies and TV shows and academics out there that are saying, there's no evidence for the Bible. Guys, I'm here to tell you, if you'll walk where Jesus and Paul and Moses walked, we have a ton of evidence for the Bible. But you can go all the way back to the beginning, and there was already fake faith. There's 13 letters that are ascribed to Paul by historians. Four of them have this notation in them. Galatians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon all say, I wrote part of this with my own hand. I, Paul, wrote part of it. Why did he say that? Because already people were circulating fake letters as though they had come from Paul in the first century. Right alongside truth, there was always a smokescreen being raised already in the first century. Now listen to what Peter said, the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he said this, We do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, we witnessed what happened and attacks were already being thrown at them. So I want to take a few moments, and I want to give you the four reasons why I actually believe the Bible's really true. And the first two of these are philosophical reasons, and they are subjective, so I don't use them in the academic circles. The second two are academic and objective reasons. So I'll spend more time on the last two. But, but the beginning one is very simple. See if you can follow it with me. I, I believe, and I openly admit, to the simple logic of trusting a powerful creator to be a good publisher. Here's my point. If you read the opening of the Bible, the opening line of the Bible is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I believe that if you can accept that line, the rest of the story is pretty easy. 
See, if you can believe that God can speak and there is light and can fling one quintillion stars into the fabric of the heavens, then, you know, making a fish that Jonah can ride in from country to country isn't a big deal. You know, honestly, none of the things that he's, if, if he's going to get Lazarus out of the tomb, it's not a big deal if you created Adam from the dust of the ground, okay? If you have the first part, the rest of it gets easy. So when somebody comes to me, I get put in these Bible answer man things in youth conferences. I don't know why, because nothing about me says youth. But, but the point is, <laughs> I, I get put in these things, and some, some kid will stand up and he'll say, he'll say, how could you believe the Bible wasn't corrupted with mistakes and flaws? And I'll say, hey, are, are you a, are, are you, do you believe in God? Yes. So, so let me get this right. You believe that God could create with his mouth the heavens and the earth, light and darkness, but what he could not do, what was just so hard to do, was to publish a book. <laughs> See, your God is too small. The God of Abraham is bigger than that. So I believe, honestly, in the simple logic that the creator is strong enough to write a book and maintain it. The, the second reason, well, <laughs> the second thing is kind of like this. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I, I don't apologize for that. You may not be, but that's okay. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So I want to treat the Bible the way Jesus treated the Bible. And honestly, if you look carefully, Jesus in Matthew 4 is under the attack of his enemy, and he uses the word of God as power to speak against the devil himself. And when he speaks of Adam and Eve, he speaks as though they're real from a real garden with a real fall that, by the way, brought about his necessity. And, and when he spoke of Jonah's fish, it wasn't a metaphor. And when he spoke of Noah, he spoke of the days of Noah and an ark. He treated it like it was actual history. Why, as a follower of Jesus, wouldn't I treat it that way? Now, those are both philosophical reasons. And I don't deny they're not the strongest academic reasons, but I've got a lot of years under my belt for the next two. The third reason that I follow after the scripture is history is because of archaeology. Now, I spent a lot of time in archaeology. My claim to fame, by the way, as an archaeologist, I worked in forensic archaeology. We do dead people and sewers. I did sewers. <laughs> so I actually cleaned a bathroom floor and a toilet from the time of Isaiah. I know this is riveting stuff, but the point is, my toilet seat gets seen by literally millions of people a year on non-COVID years when they go through the city of David, Old Testament Jerusalem. And here's the important thing. Archaeology is not designed to prove the Bible. When, when you're digging and somebody comes up and says, what are you looking for? The right scientific answer is whatever we find. You're not supposed to know what's going to be there till it's there. But here's the thing, I've been in archaeology as a student and archaeology as a teacher long enough to remember when they said back in the day, Moses, Moses, he was illiterate. There's no way he wrote those books. Why in the world would you think that those people were illiterate? There's not an Egyptologist anywhere now that would say that. Because in the last 150 years, we discovered that the elite layer of Egyptian society was the most literate ancient society on the planet, and Moses was educated right there. I remember when people would say, the Hittites, ah, the Hittites, it's a made-up group of people. There's no empire of the Hittites. 
By the way, if you want to tell a joke and you don't want to offend anybody, you make it a Hittite joke. They're all extinct. Nobody gets offended, okay? But the point is, <laughs> Hittites actually were a thing. They dug Hattusis and found this incredible administrative city with a big empire. Who knew? The Bible. And what I can tell you is, people would say, like, in Acts 13, the apostle Paul runs into this proconsul whose name is Sergius Paulus. There was no record of a Sergius Paulus in Roman record that we had. And so people said, well, they must have made it up until one day they're digging and they turn over a stone and there's Sergius Paulus who served under Emperor Claudius, perfect for the time and place for Acts 13. Now he's real because he's on a rock. <laughs> oh, that's, it goes on and on. Yeah, 1960s, Antonio Frova, the Italian archaeologist, is digging at Caesarea by the sea in Israel. He's digging, and a, a young volunteer comes to him and says, I think there's something written on this stone. So when you get epigraphy, everybody stops. They come and clean off the stone, and it's a dedicatory plaque to Emperor Tiberius under somebody named Pontus Pilatus, Pontius Pilate. And they go, hooray, Pilate's a real person now. How dumb, okay? Because <laughs> if we find it on a rock, now it's real. I remember when they said King David, oh, nice little shepherd boy story, good stuff, Goliath, very nice, good for Sunday school, not a real guy. And then they find a tell Dan an inscription that says the sons of David are ruling on the throne of David. Because here's the thing, you don't have a throne of David without a David. So here's what I know. I remember when people said the altar of the golden calf. Oh, that's a metaphor for idolatry. Until Avram Biron in 1966 dug it up and actually found the actual edges of the altar and could show you where the golden calf once stood. See, my point is that when you're looking at archaeology, the ball's going in our direction if you actually appreciate the text. I'm not telling you there's no problems. I'm trying to tell you that what one generation criticizes from the text, the next one turns over a spade and finds. And God is not silent on defense of his word. Now, archaeology has literally truckloads of evidence, but that's not my only reason for believing what I believe. I use what I will call the historical record. Now, there's evidence, solid evidence. Ladies and gentlemen, there's solid evidence that Jesus of Nazareth and his work actually took place beyond some sentimental, well, I love Jesus from the church picnic feeling. If there was a teacher named Jesus of Nazareth who grew up on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire in the first century in the Galilee, if he was in fact teaching crowds, if he was in fact arrested, if he was in fact executed by a Roman commander or procurator, you would think somebody other than his followers would have written that down in Roman history. Guess what? They did. And if you were to check Talus in the year 55, you would find that Talus writes these words. There was an earthquake and darkness surrounding the crucifixion of one called the Messiah by some of the Jewish people. Talus was not a believer. He's just telling you what happened. Where you could go to Cornelius Tacitus, one of the brighter lights of ancient history, and, and he writes in the annals, he says, Christ was crucified under a Roman governor. Or you could check Pliny the Younger, who told us about the destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum under Vesuvius in the year 79. You could check him, and he says, one called Christ, and those that followed him were multiplying and became a problem to the Romans at the end of the first century and beginning of the second. 
You, you could follow that up with Suetonius, the Roman historian, who blamed the followers of one called Crestus for the burning of Rome. Look, my point is that when the book of Acts says that the message of the resurrection of Jesus caught on and people began to follow it and they overturned the world, they ain't just talking. We've got evidence outside of the believers that say exactly that. From wine casks with Herod the Great written on them to little etchings at the base of a column that say prayers to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the name of Yeshua or Jesus from the first and second centuries, we've got lots and lots of evidence archaeologically and historically that Jesus was here, that these events actually happened. But there's one event. In all the time I've left, there's one event I want to talk about. Because it's the pillar on which all the other events set. And that's the event recorded in John 20. It's the event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to assert two things, if I can. First, that in the early church, the early record of the church was that they believed that Jesus was raised. That doesn't prove he was. But it does prove that what Dan Brown wrote, that the church later on added all this stuff to it to make that case, is not true. Second, I want to assert that the best historical explanation for what happened on that early Sunday morning is Jesus walked out of the tomb based on the available data. So hang in there with me for just a minute. Now, first, are we sure that the early Christians actually believed that Jesus was raised from the dead? I think we are. I think if you check all four gospel accounts, the resurrection of Jesus is featured in all. Not only is the resurrection featured, but the events are predicted and telegraphed by Jesus earlier in the gospel account where he says, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised. I'm going to be back with you. Even though they didn't understand what he was saying, you don't have to go past a couple of passages like Mark 9 or Luke 9 or, or Matthew 16 and 17 to see that Jesus understood what was going to happen and the gospel writers featured it. In fact, I don't care whether you check out the preaching of Peter or Philip or Paul or John. If you go to the book of Acts, you'll find the major central figure all the way through the preaching was the resurrected Christ. We preach Christ and him crucified. So it doesn't fit that they later on added this story in. In fact, it said, you know what I love about the, the examples? In, in the Gospels, it literally says there was such physicality ascribed to Jesus' resurrection that it wasn't a ghost. We're not talking about Casper here. Listen to this. This is what happens. It says that Jesus was clearly raised. Luke 24, 41 says, while they could still not believe it because of their joy and amazement, Jesus said to them, do you have anything to eat? The resurrected Jesus is in the room. They're amazed. And he says, hey, I'm hungry. Anybody got any food? <laughs> and then it says, they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Like you care what was on the menu that day, right? and he took it and he ate it in front of them. Wow! See, when we talk about the physical resurrection, we're talking about something that is so physical, ghosts don't eat fish. Spiritual metaphors can't chew. This is a living being. Now, on the basis of that claim, let me just say that I want to go back to the very beginning and ask the question, how could we literally say Jesus died and was raised again. Did you know that almost all scholars, whether they're academically on the side of belief or not, 
will agree to this statement. Jesus died by crucifixion just outside of Jerusalem. E.P. Sanders, who was one of the critical scholars, said this is one of the most indisputable facts of Jesus' life. There's a second statement almost every scholar in every room that's serious will, will agree to. Jesus was buried in Jerusalem near to his execution site on the day in which he died. You know, Paul wrote that. The Gospels wrote that. But so did Josephus Flavius. So did Tacitus and other Roman sources. Jesus of Nazareth was in fact sentenced to death by a Roman governor in Jerusalem and died that day. That's not disputed by anyone who's serious about history and the historical record. But the real question, the real question that even the most skeptical historian has to face is this. What exactly set in motion the events that led to the dominant rise of Christianity from a backwater province of Rome? Now, there's four theories as to how this happened. This little message of this backwater becomes the thing that takes over the Roman Empire. How does it happen? Some will say, well, it started with a mythic theory. That's the idea that the disciples made up that Jesus was raised. The, the, the second one is the conspiracy theory. That's the one that some academics use today, that later on the church pressed the idea of resurrection so they could take power over the masses. The third one's called the mass hallucination theory. That's the idea that grief-stricken people saw what they wanted to see in, in the resurrected Christ. And the fourth one is Jesus got up and walked out of the tomb, and that's why they said it, the resurrection hypothesis. Let's look at each one. Kick around the mythical theory for a minute. The idea that the disciples made it up so that they could advance in their life. That really doesn't hold up. In fact, the greatest way to shorten your lifespan in the first century was to follow Jesus. So the notion that the early followers trumped up this message to somehow become more important in society doesn't hold up to the record of the persecution and bloodbath that followed. Let's look for a moment at the conspiracy theory. The idea that later church authorities trumped up this message to somehow get people to, to come along with it and then take control doesn't fit the facts. In fact, forensic archaeologists will tell you that something incredible happened in the first century. Romans, as they believed the message of Jesus, stopped having their bodies burned and incinerated and put in little jars in a necropolis or the city of the dead, and they started having articulated burial where they were buried as a body wrapped in a sheet waiting for a resurrection. They didn't burn the body because they needed it again because they were going to be raised. And we see across the Roman Empire in the first 200 years after Jesus a striking change in the whole way people are being buried as the Christian message is overturning the world. Those are real events, and we can lock those to forensic science. Not only that, but anthropologists tell the craziest story that these early followers of Jesus believing that they could die, but they would live again, actually walked into leper colonies and began to serve the poor and the helpless. They began to go in to deal with prisoners. They began to deal with the needy. And they did not even think that they might have to die because they figured if I die, I'm going to be alive again. So we start to see a change in the psychology and the sociology of the group of people that are claiming Jesus. And you can already see this is all before they have any power. And by the way, check what I'm saying. 
you will not find in the first nor the second century a single document anywhere in Roman record that claims that the early believers were trying to get political power. In fact, instead of trying to take over, they went right into the heart of the neediest community and that's where they showed their faith. That's worth remembering today. And what's interesting to me is that Roman and Jewish records indicate that these, that these people that became Christians had no desire for politics. So the mythical theory, the conspiracy theory, they don't hold up. But, but what, about, what about the hallucination theory? Maybe they were all like Bigfoot watchers with binoculars. They so wanted to see Jesus that when they saw him, he was like the Loch Ness Monster. But, but wait a minute, what's the record of how the disciples responded when the message came? You remember this? The ladies come in from the tomb. They come with a message. He is risen, as he said. Listen to how the disciples responded. This is Luke 24, 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. See, I'm not seeing a group of guys who are hungry to see Jesus raised. I'm seeing a group of guys who are going, you're nuts. So when I look at this group hallucinations, that doesn't work. By the way, check the, the uh, peer-reviewed journals. You'll find that, that when there's a, an event where people think they heard something or saw something, you know what there's not? There's not multi-sensory input hallucination events where they both saw it and heard it, 500 of them at one time. You won't find one of those in a peer-reviewed journal in the last two decades because they're incredibly rare. In fact, we don't even know that they ever happen. So here's the bottom line. The theory of the resurrection hypothesis, the idea that Jesus walked out of the tomb is what we're left with. And, and in fact, that essential theory argues this, that the actual resurrection of Jesus best explains the changed lives of the disciples. Even those who don't want to believe in the resurrection of Jesus are forced to admit that something happened to those men. Now, belief doesn't prove truth, but it does explain a powerful motive that drove the movement. Something happened that transformed a fearful group of disciples and compelled them to take the message all over the world. You know, James, who became the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, was the half-brother of Jesus, but he didn't follow Jesus until after Jesus died. What happened to James? Paul was actually out killing Christians and something happened to him and he became a leader among them. What happened to Paul? Something happened to these men. In fact, if you listen to John 20, it says this. After Jesus was crucified, it was the evening of that day. The first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Do these guys sound brave? They're hiding in a house. Jesus pops in and says, peace, because they don't look peaceful. <laughs> but an unmistakable change happens. Listen, John 20, 20 says, and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They started fearful, but now they're rejoicing. They saw Jesus and they knew he was alive again. John 20 goes on to say that he commissions them and sends them out on a mission based on the veracity that he was alive again. It says that in John 20, 22, he empowered them with the spirit of God and they began to be transformed. They were gonna go out and give the message of the forgiveness of sins based on the resurrected Christ. 
Later on, Paul's going to write, look, 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ be not risen, we're just a bunch of hucksters. Those who died, died in their sin because they believed in Jesus and it wasn't real. But Christ is risen. I believe the single hypothesis that best explains the change in these men from, from, from absolutely afraid to bold and zealous to face persecution, to face their own death, I believe, is that they actually saw Jesus raised again. I want to take you to that moment. I want to put you back in that room. They had been to Gethsemane. They were praying together. Jesus went to pray and the disciples went to sleep. They woke up a third time to the sound of the swords. Jesus was hustled away and early in the morning they saw him again when Pontius Pilate stood up and said, Behold the man! And out he came with part of his beard plucked out, a crown of thorns pressed into his head, his visage almost unrecognizable, the skin and muscles torn off his back from a lashing. As they pulled him out and he took the crossbeam of the cross and stumbled through the streets, the men stood back in horror. They heard him cry as they drove the nails in his hands and his feet and put him up onto that cross. They watched him die. They saw him die. So hope died with it because they forgot who he was. They forgot the power that caused the blind man from the pool of Siloam to see. They forgot the power that caused the lame man from Bethesda to get up and walk. They, they forgot the power that caused thousands to be fed from a little boy's lunchbox on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. They forgot the power that caused Elijah and Moses to come back from the dead when they saw them. They forgot the power of the voice of Jesus that said, Lazarus, come forth as the limp and, limp and lifeless body of Lazarus walked out of the tomb. All this they forgot because he was dead. We saw him die. But it would not always be so, would it? His was a life-changing, heart-throbbing power that would alter human history. It began with Stephen, who Paul, before he was one of us, had stoned beyond the gate of Jerusalem. James was next, killed for the preaching of salvation through the cross of Christ. Matthias was tied to a cross, draped with carrion, eaten by vultures. Jude Thaddeus was crucified and then shot to death with arrows. Nathaniel was skinned alive and then crucified in double agony. Philip was hanged from a column near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Andrew was was crucified in Egypt. Matthew was beheaded in Alexandria. John Mark was dragged to death behind a chariot. James Alpheus was thrown to his death from the roof of Herod's palace. Thomas was speared to death by a mob. Simon the Zealot was sold into pieces alive. Peter and Paul were taken by Roman authorities while the Romans gorged lions in the stadiums. Paul was beheaded at the liminal edge of the city of Rome. We have a story about Peter that he watched his wife crucified before him as he called to her, remember Christ, remember Christ. Peter did not feel worthy to be crucified as the Lord, making him place him head down so that he would suffer many times longer. Beloved, if someone comes to you and they says, I'll believe in your Jesus if you show proof, don't show them an empty tomb. There's lots of ways to empty a tomb. You show them that these ordinary men, some from the very agony of their own crosses, would not cease to give the, the triumphant message of the risen Christ, no matter what they did. See, I know human nature. 
And if I didn't really see him raised, and they were going to saw me into pieces, I'd go, sorry, just kidding. But what if I saw him? What if I knew that on the other side, when you take me out of this body, I will stand before the prince of life? What if I saw him? What else could I say but he is risen as he said? Beloved, I will tell you, there's tremendous evidence for our faith. It's not sentimental. It's based on the reality and the best explanation of what we find. Father, this morning, we are dependent upon you because we recognize there's more going on than just an academic argument here. If your spirit doesn't do a work within us, nothing's going to happen. But at the same time, Father, we recognize that when we open up the pages of the word, we're not simply listening to cleverly devised myths, but holy men of God were moved by your spirit and penned out a message that is life-changing and transformative. Jesus, you did everything necessary to forgive my sin, save one thing. You asked me to submit myself to you. The one thing I have is the one thing you want, me. And I know myself well enough to know I don't know why. But you wanted a relationship, and you want that for people in this room this morning. Oh, how we thank you. Not only that you did it in Jesus, but that you accurately recorded it and left that record for us. It changes everything. In Jesus' name.